I'm excited to share that the Press One for Nick podcast is this year's media sponsor at the AMA Ignite Conference. I've been involved for four years already, and this conference is awesome because it focuses on customer experience from a marketing lens. I enjoy the speakers every year, and I always meet other like-minded professionals. The AMA Ignite Conference is taking place in person in Cincinnati on Friday, September 23rd, and the theme this year is the experience equation, customer experience plus Employee experience equals the total experience. If you're interested, the Press One for Nick listeners can get an additional 10% discount on the AMA Ignite conference by using the promo code Press One for Nick when you register. To learn more and register, go to igniteama.com. That's igniteama.com. This is CX of M Radio, the voice of customer experience professionals. Welcome to another episode of Press One for Nick. Your host, Nick Limsdahl, is the Director of Contact Center Solutions at VDS. Through conversations with customer service and customer experience leaders, Nick and his guests exchange insightful stories, best practices, and invaluable lessons they have learned along the way. Welcome to the Press One for Nick podcast. My name is Nick Limsdahl. My guest this week is Steve Cadigan. Steve is a sought-after talent advisor to leaders and organizations across the globe. As a founder of his own Silicon Valley-based firm, the Cadigan Talent Ventures, Steve advises organizations including Twitter, Eventbrite, Cisco, Intel, and Salesforce, you know, the small ones. Prior to launching his firm, he, he worked as an HR executive for over 25 years at a wide range of companies, but his HR career was capped by serving as the first chief human resource officer at LinkedIn from 2009 to 2012. Steven, Steve, welcome to the Press One for Nick podcast. Hey, Nick. Thanks for having me, man. Great to be here. You bet. So one question I ask every single guest is what's one thing people might not know about you? I guess one thing is that I grew up in South Africa and uh, my parents were really adventurous. And when I was two, they said, we're going to South Africa for a year. And it, four years later, <laughs> we're still there. And uh, we got kicked out when I was seven. So probably the first five years of my life, I was in uh, another country and Growing up in uh, in the East Coast, we were. Uh, I was born in the U.S., but uh, those first five years were in South Africa, and coming back, having to learn how to speak American uh, or English in a different way. So that's something not a lot of people know. It's really cool. So if you remember, I don't know how much you remember in those first four or five years, but what was your favorite part about South Africa? Not wearing shoes. <laughs> You, you know, you the, don't have to wear shoes. You're just going <laughs> to look at a little bit different here. I just, I mean, you don't, you don't have much memory before the age of seven, right? I think seven yeah. is when they say you start remembering things. I remember not wearing shoes. I remember having a uniform for school and I was so stoked to put on the uniform, but the shoes just felt weird. And looking back and seeing photos of yourself as a kid, just running around uh, really free. And, and also remembering like huge snakes we'd see in the backyard or, or things like that. We weren't living way out there. It was more sub suburbia, yeah. uh, South Africa, but still just the, the wildness of the backyard, you know, as a kid was pretty cool. That's awesome. So we got this book here that this, this author, Steve Cadigan wrote, uh, he, he wrote this book called uh, work quake uh, and I want to dig into it. I got a boatload of questions and I don't know if I'm going to get to all of them, Super. but, uh, I'm here for, for, uh, drilling you with as many questions as possible until you tell me to pull the plug. <laughs> okay. 
So the first one I got for you is, you know, in the book, it says people are, are changing jobs faster than any time in the history of, of jobs. So why is that? I think there's a lot of reasons. And honestly, I published that you know, probably six months into COVID yeah. and it's accelerated even since then. Uh, in the United States, they've said in the last three months, we've had the highest number of voluntary resignations since they've been tracking it. I think um, at a high level, the, the psychology of the workforce is shifting. I think people are thinking more about career security than job security. I think the uh, evolution of technology changing jobs is making people feel restless that the longer I stay, maybe the more stale I'm getting, maybe the, the more vulnerable I'm getting. And, and that's because organizations have said, we're digitally transforming, things are changing. And so people are starting to say, well, I, I better take control of my path because you may be upgrading and I may be a downgrade for you. So I think people are uh, tasting in the pandemic more uh, the reality that they really like the freedom, autonomy and independence. And at a moment, at a strange moment in time, uh, as we record this during the pandemic, where people are sort of hitting pause and going, you know, maybe I can rebuild my path differently. And I think they're acting on that in like significant numbers. So lots of factors. Uh, I also think that in a lot of research I, I talk about in my book, which is the shelf life value of a hard skill today is shorter than it's ever been. So the need for you to learn new things is constant. And so people are, are, you know, wondering, am I learning the right things? And if I don't feel like I'm learning the right things, I'm going to go somewhere where I think I will learn the right things. And, and lastly, Nick, I think, and, and again, um, I feel a little bit responsible for this because LinkedIn created this great transparency to opportunity that unlike anything we've ever had before, where you can see how you can apply your skills, talents, and abilities, and what jobs are open on a, on a scale that never before realized. I think that maximum choice is creating maximum confusion for people. Like, where should I go? What should I do? And, and the great thing about more choices, that's, that's wonderful. You have more choices. The dark side of more choices, the fear that maybe I made the wrong choice. <laughs> you know? And so we've got this great you know, visibility to all this opportunity. And as soon as you make a choice, then you wonder, oh, did I make the right choice or the wrong choice? And I think that's causing some churn. And we haven't, we haven't seen that settle out yet. You know, and this may be the new reality that it, the workforce is going to be a lot more fluid, but we don't know. Yeah. I, I think, how is that going to change people's thought about a career? Because it's not necessarily going through uh, two months or six months or a year or five years or 25 years because I have a pension. So I'm going to stick around for 25 <laughs> years. People's mindset isn't like that anymore. Like you said, the, there's not enough clarity. There's more confusion than anything because of all the choice in the world. And when somebody's going to pitch them, if it's a head of HR and they're like, hey, look, all the cool things and the swag there, I'm going to give you on day one. <laughs> and you show up and you're like, well, what do I do next? Like, where is that path for, for an organization or for an individual, I guess, even for their career moving forward? Well, that's a, that's a great question, Nick. And I think that what it makes me reflect on is a conversation I have with many organizations around the world. And this is not just a North America thing. This is a global phenomenon that we're seeing, even in countries where there's high job protection and job safety um, legislated, that people are still moving faster. And I think that one of the questions I ask all executives is, do you 
Do you believe that this trend of people moving is going to change? Do you think people leaving companies faster will change in the future? And the answer is always, nope, I don't think it will. I said, so maybe the challenge is how do you optimize for creating value when people are with you for a shorter period of time? Or how do you think differently about your talent portfolio? Because most organizations, and I've been as guilty as this as the next person, so I'm not pointing fingers, most people care about employees only when the employee works there. And I think in a more fluid world, and this is a good thing, we're going to have to care about people for the entirety of their careers, not just when they work for us. And so I call that, in my book, I call that the Tony Soprano school of uh, HR. You quit, you're dead to me. And you, you just can't do that today. Yeah. Because you've got in a world where people are leaving companies faster, that means you have more ex-employees, you have more alumni. So I think organizations are going to start to see their portfolio not just be caring about the people who work for them, but caring about the alumni and nurturing the alumni, maybe inviting the alumni back. And so on the career front, I think we're already starting to see people have multiple employers or you know, and, and this platform is a really interesting one. Some people are making a living off of platforms that disable their necessity for them to have to work for somebody else, right? Think about all the gig opportunities that people have, side hustle, whatever you want to call it. And we're seeing careers turn into sort of patchworks of a portfolio rather than a single employer. And I think that in a world where things are changing, I think we all want more options. I think we all want more control. And I think that's a good thing. So, you know, it's not the future that we were raised on or my generation was raised on where, you know, you major in this, build that skill, write it till you retire. And now it's like, yeah, but that industry, I prepared myself for it. It just got disaggregated by a unicorn. <laughs> so I need to have different options, right? And so I think it's, it's going to be different. I don't know exactly how it's going to play. I saw one article that said, my dad had one job, I had eight, and my kids are going to have eight at the same time. And that's mm. sort of, it was, I think it was in The Economist, and it was a pretty provocative, but not too far from how I see this potentially playing out. And that's highly uncomfortable for these big organizations that like, you work for me, anything you think about when you're working for me, I own. Like that's going to be a challenge for them to make this adjustment. Yeah. So take those guys out of it. Take the, take the very rigid black and white. Uh, you have one job and the job is for you to work with me and focus on my business outcomes, not anybody else's. How else for the other people that are maybe more open-minded, how else can you keep the, our staff from leaving? Cause the, the great, great resignation, right. Is, is here. And so how are you able to it's not just the, the swag that we're giving them. It's not the, the beer or jean, jeans on Friday or the keg in the corner. Like, how are you going to continue to add value to them? And is it focusing on that, that employee lifetime value uh, and bringing them back and having that boomerang happen again? Yeah, Nick, you're on fire. These questions just get better as we as we go. No so couple, pressure. I, I don't know if it's going to continue. <laughs> that trajectory is going to continue. So well, whatever that was in that espresso, like keep doing that. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, I, I think about what you just um, what you just said in a couple of different frames. One, I don't think uh, I don't think keeping people longer is going to be a achievable goal. I don't. I think you're going to be continually disappointed if you're like, oh, yeah, we're going to measure all your bonuses on how long people stay. When everyone you ask says, do you believe people are going to stay longer in the future? No. So I think what that means is 
we need to think about like, what are we here for as an organization? We're here to create value. We've believed full-time people dedicated to us over a long time is the best way to do that. If I take a look at Tesla, if I take a look at Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Airbnb, Slack, you know, all these companies, the median tenure, in these organizations is around two years and they're creating some of the most disproportionate value on profitable companies around. So they're proving in a domain, and especially Tesla, look at the automobile industry. Tesla is worth more than Ford, Toyota, and Honda combined today. Yeah. Did they sell more cars? No. Are they more profitable? Nope. So what the investor community is voting on is a more fluid workforce is a culture of change and also a culture possibly of greater innovation, right? And so we've been built to have this, we've had this paradigm. This is what I'm saying in WorkQuake, like the world is changing and you can, there's going to be ways and there are some businesses, like you said, the black and white, that maximum control and, and, and they're still going to do, they're still going to do okay. But I think most businesses are going to do as Mark Andreessen said, software is going to eat the world. You're going to have a lot of technology. And the sooner you get an edge around, Hey, we've thought we need people here a long time to create long-term sustainable value, but we're having more and more examples of very fluid workforces creating a lot of value. And, and what I say to, to leaders and I feel for them because they're like, Hey, Steve, this is really scary. It's frustrating. And I don't know if I want to hug you or hit you as I say, you know, listen, you know, if you, if you accept some of these principles of the data, then th there are ways that you could maybe create greater value in a more fluid. Don't just assume that's the only way. And it feels uncomfortable because it's not what we know, right? So are you saying that with Ford and GM, if they had the same mindset as Tesla, that they would be more innovative and they would be worth more to the marketplace? I think their biggest challenge is themselves. The biggest challenge is um, the paradigms and the models that they built and getting out of their own way. And I think it's honestly, I think it's much easier to build a culture having done it for once in my life uh, than it is to change a culture. It really is hard. You know, I was on the phone with a, a very large technology company in Spain. And in Spain, the Spanish law says that, you know, if you want to let someone go, it's probably going to cost you the equivalent of paying them for like 10 years. So you're like, well, why do I want to let them go? I'd rather just have them here like filing, you know, files or, or sorting the paper clips rather than pay yeah. that. Why would I want to do that? And so their biggest challenge was we can't change because we can't shift our skill profile fast enough. Right. And so I don't know those, those organizations, I was, uh, I had a conversation with the president of General Motors just two weeks ago. He was interviewing me on his podcast for uh, for a school that he's the chairman of the board for. And I think they look with envy and say, well, game on, like, let's go. What can we learn? And they're doing everything they can to, to move faster. I mean, Ford just came out yesterday with a big campaign. Like we are the most forward thinking electric car company in the world. I'm like, obviously the Ford communications team came up with that headline, <laughs> but they have, they built some new factories that are yeah. driving, you know, more electric car battery creation than even Tesla is. So I think they want to prove that they're more innovative, right? Mm -hmm. And they're trying, they're trying lots of things, which is a good thing. Yeah, it's, it's important to talk about it. And most of the time, it's important to talk about it after you've already accomplished it, yeah. not necessarily yeah. at the beginning. Yeah. Uh, well, so, we so, were told, Nick, we got to write the goal down if we want to achieve it. So we wrote it down. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, we definitely learned that in grade school. And then uh, we should, should have innovated uh, from there. But 
uh, since we're already ruffling feathers, we might as well continue the journey on the next question. Um, okay. You mentioned in the book that college is no longer the investment that will guarantee us a viable career path. Uh, you know, most universities and college professors will freak out over that, but um, how should we view school instead? All right. So let me first come clean on this one because I've got a lot of people re reacted to this one in, yeah. in, in very healthy ways, right? It's mm -hmm. like Carol Dweck, who's the godmother of the growth mindset, said, if your brain isn't hurting, then you're not growing. Uh, and so do I want my children? I have three boys um, and I have two stepdaughters and I have every desire for them to go to school, but not to get a job. I want them to go to school to learn how to think critically, how to communicate, how to express themselves, how to build their power skills or soft skills there. I want them to get exposed to lots of different things so that when they enter the world of work that they have maybe more choice, more capability, more options. So I, I'm not saying that it's not a good investment. It's just, I think we've looked at school as like, oh, I go to school to get a job. No, that is an outcome that's a good outcome yeah. but that's also building community learning how to operate uh and getting exposed to different ideas and different cultures and different people and 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 learning how to create um new things in new ways and that's a beautiful that's a really beautiful thing but if people are thinking i go there means i get a job here i think it's the wrong way to be thinking about it and I think we've got so much access to free knowledge today, more than ever before. And the pandemic sort of, a lot of these organizations that were selling online careers gave it away for free, which is a beautiful thing. The Coursera's Singularities, Udacities, and so forth. Um, that I think, you know, and Google just came out and said they're partnering with Coursera for a six month credential that will guarantee you an interview with a top tier company, you know, several interviews with a top tier company in six months. And so, you know, it's not the guarantee right now. We're seeing business schools close down from some very big name universities are just closing the business school. So we're, you know, I think the, the, the shape is happening. I'm not blaming education and I'm not pointing fingers at institutional education because when I go visit a lot of these schools around the world and I teach and I guest lecture all over the place, I asked them, said, so what are you teaching and why are you teaching what you're teaching? And they say, well, we're trying to prepare students for society. But when we go talk to organizations, we ask them, hey, what should we be building? They don't know what to they don't know what, how to answer the question. Mm. So businesses, you see, aren't really sure what skills they need for the future. And if businesses don't know, how can, you know, institutions be able to optimally prepare them if that's the market that they're preparing them for, which is just an interesting, it's an interesting dynamic. And I do think so to cut to the punchline, I think the future of education is going to be shared ownership by enterprises. You're not going to win in the world of recruiting today if you're always hunting for talent. You're only going to win if you're growing it, building it, making it and hunting because the supply is, just, is, is shrinking and the technical talent, there is no reservoir of technical talent that hasn't, you know, it's a finite uh, amount right now. And so everyone's going to have to learn to be more creative. In a competitive market, does your customer service stand out from the crowd? One way to offer a better experience is by moving your contact center to the cloud. But with so many options to choose from, how do you know which solution is the best for both your business and your customers? That's where VDS comes in and guides you to the best solution. They understand your clients' pain points, business outcomes, and goals. Then VDS designs, implements, supports, and provides 24-7 managed services. 
From start to finish, VDS is committed to finding the best solutions for your clients' needs. To learn more, go to www.govds.com or find a link in the show notes. Yeah, I love the mindset shift. It's, it's completely different than, so what you talked about, you were a, a guest lecturer, a guest speaker at, at a university. So what would happen if that is that was the degree? is you just talk to, because just stop right there. I mean, the, I learned the most when I had got my MBA was from adjunct professors who actually lived and breathed the, the expertise that they were speaking. And if I could learn from leaders of HR around my HR course, and it was uh, learn as you go, um, or it's negotiation, I'm learning from Chris Voss, or if it's, mm-hmm. um, it's talking about employee experience, I'm learning from somebody else who is an SVP at Visa, or whatever it is, like, have the ability to mix and mingle your education and still have a certificate that you get to take home. But how much more would I be able to learn is, uh, and then adapt and, and put into action Instead of Mm -hmm. just saying, hey, I I answered a 70 out of 100 or a 95 out of 100 because I really memorized well. Uh, You know, maybe there's a better way to do that. And I think you nailed it where companies maybe could take that into action, but so could organizations like yourself. I I think uh, I'll just take myself as an example. I was a history major. I entered school and exited school with not a clue of what I wanted to do. And the son of a minister and uh, the son of a social worker. And I learned as a history major, I majored in history because I loved, I loved the subject more than any other subject. I wasn't thinking, if I do this, I will be this. I was just, I love the subject. And maybe if my parents were more directive, it was like, no, 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 you need to be business because you're going to make some money and then we can retire early thanks to your you know, earnings. That wasn't how, how I did it. And I realized, Nick, in my professional career, in, in all humility, I realized the top job for my profession. Being the first chief HR officer at LinkedIn was the only job in the world in my profession of HR that I would want to do. Top of the heap, top of the mountain. Now, how did how did that happen? Like I didn't go, I didn't do a single internship in college, not one. I painted houses, I taught tennis, I was a security guard. And so what I learned as a history major was the ability to think creatively, to solve problems differently, to look at a you know, set of data and to question and challenge it, to communicate really well. And my, my profession is all about building trust and being credible. And you got to be humble too in, in that. And so a lot of my college experience was also competing. I played in three sports in college and I wasn't a superstar by any means, but that whole experience of competition and studying people in certain situations, I parlayed that so well in my profession, which is I get joy learning how people handle situations. How do you handle victory? How do you handle defeat? How do you handle pressure? How do you handle working for a screamer, coach, or boss? I mean, and how do I optimize the arrangement of the unique personalities and people that I have who are all going through their own stuff in their own life to produce something great? That probably parlayed more to for me to leverage in my profession the recreation time that I did in school than anything I did in the classroom. And that's not something people want to hear because they think, oh, it's all, all that sports stuff is just extra, call it extracurricular, right? Not core curricular. And so, you know, this is why I think we're looking at education wrong. And I got into a big debate with this guy in India recently. He's like, well, Steve, you're saying everyone should learn the soft skills or what you call power skills in India. It's all about STEM. 
And I'm like, well, listen, I've hired my fair share of STEM mercenaries. Smartest person in the room cannot work with other people, mm. right? So that how good that knowledge is, is mitigated by how well you can communicate and share it and, and work with others, right? So I think we've, we've got to really shake up our, our perception of how we attack this unknown future right here. Yeah, I think that's a can of worms. This could just be like a, a hundred episode um, <laughs> conversation right there. But uh, we'll I'll, I'll put that on the shelf. We'll come back to it another time. But you know, when it comes to we talked about kind of the the organizations kind of gloat themselves on being best places to work, or we pay our 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 people well, or we have a limited PTO, or you know, I think it's just that's the baseline now. So how can organizations differentiate themselves? Is there is it about just uh, education? Is it about focusing on the the total, like we said, the total employee experience? Um, is there something else? Is there steps to take to get people to stay longer? Because uh, I just talked to an organization, um, uh, publicly traded organization last, last night, and they were saying, I am struggling trying to find and retain and hire people because it's just tough. So yeah. what's the better way? Well, the first thing I like to do when I'm having a conversation like the one you just had is ask them, how profitable have you been during the pandemic? And what I hear nine times out of 10 is, oh, we've been way more profitable. I said, so what's your problem then? Your problem is that you believe people staying longer is the right model for organizational survival. And you just told me your staff's never been leaving faster and you're making more money. I'm like, so you're worried you're going to run off a cliff at some point. But, and, and, and that's fair. But again, I, I really feel like 
you know, the, the, the pace that we're in right now, it requires us to be more creative and more thoughtful around coming up with a, with a different talent strategy that optimizes for getting people up to speed quickly, that optimizes for maybe we need to re-engineer work, right? So that someone doesn't need six months to learn how to do this or two years. I was, I was in Atlanta two days ago, had a manufacturing said, my machines require people to take six years to learn how to operate this. And then see, they leave two years later. I'm like, well, that's on you, man. That's yeah. on you. Why did you design the job? And he's like, no, he was feeling like he's a victim. Like, well, the machine requires that. No, you could have different people own different parts of the machine. Yeah. That way, you know, you can change it out. So, but it's, it's on us to sort of think about this just a, a little bit differently. And, and, and that's why I think the problem we face is also the biggest opportunity that we face. Like the pandemic has given us a moment in time to rebuild. We are not going back to that, whatever that was, right? And what I tell people is you don't have a recruiting problem. You don't have a retention problem. You have a belief that I need someone. How do you know you don't need three contractors? How do you know that you don't have someone else in your organization? So when people tell me today, I've got a recruiting problem, I say, well, let me ask you, do you know all the skills of every employee in your company? And they go, well, no. I go, well, then how do you know you don't have someone that could do part of this or maybe do it, do it a little bit better? And this is one of the wake up calls. And I have a, I have a TikTok channel that's been gaining some momentum. We just, we just hit 125,000 followers and closing in on a million likes. And, and I take that as a sort of a humorous channel to sort of poke fun at corporate America. And I have a whole series called true stories from corporate America. And one of the things I say, and I'm going to do this whole, Hey, we're a great place to work. Uh, you're a great place to work. Okay. Is the is talent the first thing you talk about in every meeting? Well, no. Are the best systems in your company the people systems helping people do their jobs better? No. We bought a really good accounting system and a good sales CRM, right? So you're not a people first company. You're a we believe we are. We're a nice place. We like people. We treat you well. We pay you well. But a talent first company has a lot of other ingredients. Like we know all the skills of all our people. We know how qualified they are for every other company. Think about this. And this doesn't make any sense to me, Nick. How can you dare come to me and say you have a recruiting problem when you don't know the full inventory of all the skills you have in your company? How dare you say that? How dare you say that you're a people first company when not every employee has a visual graph of how qualified they are for every job in the company and for any job that they're less than 6% qualified, here's the courses that you could take to get you to 70, right? How can you say that? And we've got such a low bar that we're, we should be holding companies way more accountable to do a lot more. And so, and here's another thing I will tell you as a human resource person going out there. And if I were to take my shirt off, you'd see the scars on my back. More people know what they don't want from human resources than what they do because they've never seen great talent strategies really play in to deliver greatness. So I had one last chance in my career arc at LinkedIn to be able to change the arc on that because I had a great leadership team around me, had a great CEO, had a great team. It's like, we don't know uh, what we want from HR, but we know we want it great. And I'm like, well, great HR means you're all great at HR, not me. Yeah. You know, that means you have great people sensibilities that you care about the careers of your people and you care about the culture. And it's usually like, oh, uh, diversity. Yeah, well, that's the diversity person over there. They own it. Wrong. Everybody's got to own it if you want to move the needle. As soon as you park it that someone else owns it, you've just divorced yourself from sharing responsibility for that. And that's part of why I feel, I'm sorry, I'm just getting on my soapbox here, but this is yeah, part of why I wrote on my it, book. Man. Keep going. But this is part of why I wrote my book. We have got to change here. This is, this is a moment. We have a greatest opportunity in our lives 
to rebuild the future of work, to raise the bar on what it means to be a great place to work. Really, most places aren't. And I'm, you know, I've been a part of that too. I've said, oh yeah, we're really great. We really, really work. And so I want to help show people, this is what it can look like. And employees, this is what you can expect. And leaders, this is what you can do. So the short answer is, do you want someone to stay at your company longer? Make it easier for them to leave. Prove to them that staying with you, they will grow, make an impact, and be far better staying with you than anywhere else they could go. Now, that's really hard because you know this. The grass always looks greener over there. No company or job is perfect. The L has pieces of it that aren't perfect, but you don't know that until you've gone a few other places. That's why I would love to hire rehire people that went to a place that everyone thought, like when we had people that would leave and go to Google and come back, as soon as someone would resign and say, I want to go to Google, say, okay, why don't you go talk to Susan and see what she thinks when she went over there. It's not what you think, right? Yeah. And, and maybe it will be for some people, but I think it's, 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 it's healthy and it's scary that we're seeing all this, this transition, but there's opportunity here, right? There really is. Yeah, I think the more transparency you can bring to that conversation and saying, hey, you're not qualified yet, but I know you want to get to here because that's what we've talked about. You know, it's not just a, a quarterly business review uh, yeah. with our employees, but it's, it's the journey that I want to take you on, and I want to be part of that. And if, if you want to get from point A to point B, and it's going to take that course, that, that uh, you know, one to two to three years, maybe to, to get become that engineer instead of the tier two, yeah. um, that's okay. And let's talk about how we're going to get there. And if, if you're going to be able to take that as an education, as the, as the guide for that employee, uh, man, you're going to be a differentiator. Nobody, that next organization that headhunts them, they're going to be like, well, what do you have for the training? How are you going to keep me accountable and keep me going to where I want to go and remove some of the barriers? And the same is true with customer experience, right? You, you communicate yep. when things don't go right, you communicate, you communicate, you communicate, and then you help them get from point A to point B and remove the friction. You should do the exact same with your employees. Right. And who's the more loyal customer, the one you never had a problem with or one you did and you fixed? It's right. the latter, the one you did right? You fixed. Yeah. That's right. I, I think, you know, I, I was thinking about this and I think that you know, we really have a great chance here to sort of re reframe this. Like, like you said, I, th I like the way that you put that in terms of, you know, who uh, some of the big companies I've worked with will, you know, the managers say, well, I, uh, these are my employees. No, they're not. They're, you know, they're the organization's employees and, and we're getting in our own way. It's human nature. And again, I've been as guilty of this over my career as anyone, which is like, you, you go to a manager and say, Hey, we need you to move this person over there. And they're going to be like, they're going to translate that to be, well, I'm not going to make my numbers. I'm going to be late for dinner. I'm going to have weekends where I'm not with my family. I don't want to move that great employee that I have. Like, why would I want to do that? And you say, well, if they don't go there, they're going to leave the company. And then we're all going to be hurt. So what's the, you know, take one for the team kind of thing. And they, they don't believe giving is good until they start receiving, right? So you get that flywheel um, in motion. I think it, it can really help. Well, like you said, it, it builds trust as you continue on that journey. And, and the more that you're going to invest into them, they're going to invest back into, into you and the organization. So right. with that in mind, though, as an employee, should we uh, always be looking for our next career move? Hundred percent, hundred percent, and I okay. and I talk about this in my in in my book, Work Quake, which is don't don't look at that as a disloyal thing. Look at it as a healthy thing, and that doesn't mean you should be interviewing all the time, but you should always be thinking about your next play, your next move. Or look at professional sports. I mean, look what's happened in the last 20, 30 years. I mean, 
when I was a kid, I knew every player in the New York Yankees because they never changed. And it was like community. And, and now that roster turns over 40 to 50% every year. And that, you know, based on old metrics, that's a bad thing. Based on new metrics, well, there's new people with new energy. And here's one of the things I try to tell people, like, you know, we've had this belief that people staying around a long time is the best way to build trust and, and to get to predictable outcomes. But the world of business isn't predictable anymore. In fact, the world, of predict, the world of business is very unpredictable. And what do you need in unpredictable times is the capacity to learn and innovate and adjust and be agile, right? And so when I take a look at my, my brief tenure at LinkedIn, just four years, which felt like 20, um, we, were, we doubled the size of the population every year. It was there 400 to 1,000, 1,000 to two to four. Well, what happens in that climate of hypergrowth is that every senior leader is recruiting all the time. Yeah. They're not making product. They're not engineering. They're recruiting. So what happens? Other lieutenants step up into their jobs. On paper, they're not qualified to be doing this extra, but they do. And so what I saw happen, and I had a front row seat. This is probably going to be my next book because I really started thinking about how the talent shortage is going to cause this to reveal itself more, which is at LinkedIn, because everyone was stepping up because their boss was out recruiting all the time. And, and our revenues doubled every year. So we were crushing it when all the senior leaders were out recruiting, but they were also coaching, they are also mentoring, they were there. And people who were doing more were scared, energized, and fired up. Whoa, I'm like the acting director, acting VP, and they unlocked energy. And if you ask any business leader, when have you had the most energy in your career? Doing the same thing for three years or taking on something new, maybe a little scary? It's always the new thing. But we've built work to keep people stationary. And we've forfeited the recognition that newness from our own adventure and our own journeys unlocks energy. And that's where I'm saying, like, don't be afraid. Because at LinkedIn, what was happening is new people were coming in with new ideas and new ways of solving problems. And they weren't feeling stale. And that uh, stale is poison. It's career poison right now. And so that's why I'm like, it's okay if people aren't staying longer. But it's not okay if you know they're not going to stay longer and you keep thinking they will. That's on you. Like you need to say, and there's an industry out there. It's the management consulting industry. Check this out. And this is where people's heads explode. This industry has been around for decades. That industry is built on you coming here and then please leave and get a better job. And the better the job you get, the better I can recruit more new talent. Because you came here, you worked at EY, PWC, Deloitte, you know, yeah. or, or whatever, fill in the blank. You came here, you did good stuff, you got a better job. Now I can go on campus and go, look, you know, Phil came here and then he got a job over at whatever, reallyhotnewcompany.com. And I make more money because when I hire new grads, I pay them less than I pay you when you stay here five years. Yeah. So they make more profit and they benefit from people. So that doesn't work for every business, obviously, but that's a model that is built to benefit from turnover, you know, not only from their brand, but from a profit standpoint, which is super interesting, right? Yeah, I, I love this. It's just uh, flipping the, the recruiting, the retention, the development on its head. And uh, I can keep digging into this, but uh, <laughs> um, so uh, uh, Steve, I wrap up every question, uh, every podcast with two questions. Okay. And the first one is what book or person in customer service or customer experience has influenced you the most in the past year? Uh, and then the second one is if you could leave a note to all customer service professionals, it's going to hit everybody's desk Monday at 8 a.m. What would it say? 
Okay, so the first one, uh, so re repeat the first one again. So yeah, the first, first one, is, one is if, if uh, what book or person, a customer service or customer experience or just anybody who has influenced you the most in the past year. Okay. All right, so I would say Malcolm Gladwell for me. Malcolm Gladwell, the way he thinks differently, the way he has innovated just even uh, his publishing, like he does these incredible audibles where he doesn't quote people, he brings them on. Uh, and but he's just made me reframe stuff so well. So uh, in his book, The Tipping Point, which I've reread in the last year about change, and you think about it, everyone in business, what are you here to do? You're here to change something. We need to grow this. We need to move that. We need to go to this new territory. We need to create something new. It's every we're all change agents, yeah. but we don't rec we don't call ourselves change agents. And the Tipping Point is a magnificent script flipper on how to think about change. That's awesome. Okay, and the last one. Cool. And then the last one is if you could leave a note to all customer service professionals, it's going to hit everybody's desk Monday at 8 a.m. What would it say? Uh, it would say being real is more important than being right. Being human is more important than being perfect. Mic drop. That was uh, <laughs> succinct and perfect at the same time. Perfect. Uh, Steve, what's the best way for my listeners? They're like, man, this guy was a rock star. I need to talk to him. I need to have him come talk to my organization. I need to follow him. How do we, how do they go about that? Oh uh, yeah. Thanks, Nick. Uh, well, this LinkedIn site I hear is pretty good. So you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm very responsive there. I also have a website, stevecadigan.com. So you can see me in action. I love teaching. I love speaking. I do not like to do long consulting engagements. I never like consultants. So I like to do what I call flash provocative advisory. So I, I come in for a day sometimes or a few hours, love doing that with individuals or teams. Um, and you could also see me in action uh, on the website. I also have a, a growing, I mentioned earlier, growing uh, channel on TikTok with just real like two minutes of, you know, how do you think about salary negotiation? How do you think about, you know, letting someone go or the craziest stuff that I've seen happen, uh, changing the names or protecting the innocent, of course. But, uh, but yeah, sure. that's how you can find me. I love it. And, and buy this guy's book. It's, uh, there's a lot of content in there and uh, just go where all the, wherever books are sold, right? That's right. That's right. In all forms, digital, uh, audible, and, and hard copy. Yeah. Very cool. Steve, thanks so much for your time and uh, best of luck uh, for the rest of the year. All right. Thanks for having me, Nick. Hey, listeners, can you think of one person who would benefit from the information you learned today? If so, please consider sharing it with them by giving them the link of this episode or directly from your app. And last, if you'd like to receive all the quotes and book recommendations from all my guests, go to press1fornick.com forward slash podcast. Thanks for joining us for this session of CX of M Radio. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit cxofm.org for more resources.